They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes. Oh, you didn't tell me they were going to be names now. <laughs> they, they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and the demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured, and then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. Well, no, well, that's fine, though. But, but great. Thanks for being ready. Thanks for being willing. Excellent. Um, it was great that it was who could stop the Lord Almighty, and you wouldn't let it stop at that moment. That was, that was fantastic. I, I, I just wanted to share one story that relates to this passage, because as I was thinking of it, it might relate to some of the things you've shared and, and things not going well, particularly for a whole bunch of people and us not understanding the full picture. And it, and it might relate to any of the young people going out, and it, and it might not, but, but, but bear with me. This chap who gets healed in the story, he doesn't get everything he wants, you see, and yet God is, God is in it. And I, I, was, I was just reminded, this isn't very cool, but when I was at school... The sport that I played, think of cool sports, the sport that I played was chess. <laughs> Is that okay? That's, that's got some credibility. Okay, good. Uh, right, right now, at the moment, in fact, the person who is winning nationally on the biggest fantasy football league is the world grandmaster at chess. So out of like 7,000 people or 8,000 people on the Times Fantasy Football League, it's Magnuson, who's the top chess player in the world, he's able to kind of work out what's going on in the football um, tables. And, um, and he, anyway, he's, he's winning that. But when I, when I played chess, I played um, to a reasonable standard. I played for my county and that kind of thing. And once I played against a grandmaster. Now, that might sound really impressive if you know chess, but it wasn't that impressive because at the time that I was playing him, he was playing 60 of us at once. <laughs> so, like, there was all the chess tables around the room, like a room about this size, maybe a little bit smaller, and uh, we had, as long as it took him to go around, 
um, to make our next move. He'd make an instant move, and then um, we'd have as long as... It and I think what happened was, I think two of us drew, and he won all of the other matches ag- against all of us. And the thing with, with chess is, if somebody makes a move that you, you like and respect, because you can see what they've done, it, why they've done that move, you're allowed to do this. That's as emotional as it gets <laughs> in chess. And so occasionally I would do that. But with this guy, sometimes he would make a move and I wouldn't understand why he'd done that. And sometimes, like six moves later, you think, ah, that's, that's why that happened. And sometimes ten moves later, and sometimes twenty moves later, and sometimes right at the end of the game, you'd, you'd understand, okay, well, that's why, that's why he did that. You see, and what is a grandmaster? A grandmaster is somebody who can just think ahead, take into account more factors than us, think ahead more moves than us, and therefore t- and therefore plan ahead better. That's what a grandmaster is. How much more so is our God like that, who can think ahead? So, I just wanted you to know that sometimes we don't understand everything that's going on. Sometimes we don't understand why God has done certain things, but sometimes. Some of you have lived long enough to know six moves later it makes sense. Sometimes ten moves later, sometimes twenty moves later, sometimes right at the end of the game. And so we have enough to go on to trust. We have enough to go on to go on. Thank you, young people. You can go to your groups. Thank you. <coughs> it is really good to be with you. We've enjoyed uh, uh, the time with you this weekend. Thank you for the invitation. It's our privilege to spend a bit of time with you. And we do, you know, see in this picture, sense the kind of family aspect to, to who you are and, and, uh, and what you're trying to do. And we hope that you'll be able to sort out the wheat from the chaff in what we're offering and find something that's of relevance and, and of help to you. In this story, it's a funny old story. Thank you for reading it and having a go at Gerasenes or Gerasenes or whatever it is. Appreciate that. Much rather you than me read it, so thank you for that. In this story, if you're not careful, if we're honest, we just end up feeling a little bit sorry for the pigs, don't we, in it? You know, what have they done for it all to go wrong? But I hope as we go along, we'll find that there's more in it for us, and it relates to some of the themes that I've been bringing bringing to you. If you ever get the chance, some of you may have done this already, to go to Israel and to the Holy Lands, you'll visit a whole number of places where people will say, and this is where Jesus did X. This is where this happened for Jesus. This is where um, this happened. And very often, a number of things uh, occur all at once in that place where Jesus is supposed to have done some of the things that are in our Gospels. There will be a church. Somebody will have created a little church building there. There will be a kiosk selling all sorts of merchandise there as well. And there will be a, like a ticket booth where you pay a ticket to get in to those various places and then you get in and you say so is this really where this happened and they will say yes probably (laughs) and then you unpack it and it may or may not be and I don't particularly I'm not knocking that because even if you get past the merchandise and the ticket booth and all of that and you just pause long enough there's enough that is real to kind of get through to you it's a bit like if you've ever been to Niagara Falls it's just so commercial there's just everything from Burger King to casinos and everything. But if you, in the end, when you get past all that and you're just looking at the majesty of creation, as you were talking about from the Magogs yesterday, in the end, that speaks to you. And in the end, reality gets past for you. All of that said, when you 
look at this particular story of the Gerasenes or Gergesa in, in this map, there pretty much is really only one place this could be. So when you're standing there, it pretty much is the right place because there's only one place around the lake which was a Gentile area because they've got pigs and the Jews don't have pigs and where it's steep enough to uh, really be the place where the pigs could have run down into the lake. Now, I've only been to Israel once. A friend of mine took the pictures while we were there. It doesn't look very steep from this picture and it doesn't look like they could run all the way into the lake, but the water level was higher then, 2,000 years ago. And if I show you one other picture, it is pretty steep down straight into the water. So it is one of those places you can locate. What we've got here in this story is an urban man who's not living in an urban town, but on his own because of multiple problems. He's living naked and in tombs, in caves. Multiple problems is an understatement because he's got many demons, so much so that he calls himself legion. No doubt he'd seen Roman legions. They used to march past just to be intimidating, involving 4,000 to 6,000 men. He was chained hand and foot and kept on guard, but he'd broken his chains and he'd been driven by many demons into solitary places, hence the tombs. With supernatural insight, he identifies Jesus as the Son of the Most High, which is kind of ironic because the disciples before him, just before, after very appropriately after the calming of the storm, <laughs> um, the disciples before him, they don't know who Jesus is, really. They're saying, who is this? Who even the winds and waves obey him. But this man, who is demon-possessed, he can work out who Jesus is. On seeing him, Jesus commands the demons out of him. They beg Jesus to let them enter a herd of pigs that was nearby. The fact that there are pigs is further evidence that, there, that this is a non-Jewish area. This is a Gentile area. Again, the one time I was in Israel, it's still the law in Israel that you can't farm pigs on Jewish soil. But we were in this one restaurant and they were serving like pork chops. So we said, oh, that's interesting. In, in Israel, you're serving pork chops. Where's, where's this pork from? And they said, oh, it's local. So we said, oh, okay. I thought the law was that you can't farm pigs on Jewish soil. They said, oh, no, no, no. We keep them on wooden platforms, they said. <laughs> I'm not sure that's in the spirit of the law, I'm thinking, but that's still how they, how they would do it. So this is a gentle area, and Jesus permits the demons to enter the pigs. The pigs all rush down the steep bank and are drowned. The Gentiles who lost their pigs, in fact, the whole town and the countryside, ask Jesus to leave. And he does. Despite the fact that they're seeing this original man back to his true self. The man then asks, asks isn't strong enough, he begs Jesus to be allowed back. And Jesus says no, to be allowed to go with him. Jesus says no. And he sends him back into his own area to tell of what God has done. He then actually is maybe the first person to work out who Jesus is. Because he's asked to say who, what God has done, but he actually says what Jesus has done. And he's, you could make a good case that he is the first Gentile missionary. The first missionary to non-Jewish people. It's part of a little group of accounts of Jesus changing the lives of ordinary people. 
So what we've got here is a real spiritual battle before anything else, a real spiritual miracle. Our battle is not against people, and Jesus wins that. A changed life, but also the missed opportunity of a changed life, at least on that day. The majority of people there, they missed the bigger thing going on, the greater opportunity in their lives. It reminds us, if this applies to Jesus, that, that not, not everyone got him. Not everyone got his message. Not everyone wanted to hear more. And they ask him to go. And because Jesus doesn't force himself on anybody, he does go. I know from their point of view, yeah, if you're looking at the, sh- the people looking after the pigs, the pig herders, they've lost their pigs. And a lot of pigs, if you read Mark's version, but they could only see what they've lost, not what there is to potentially gain, you see, in this story. It reminds me of the parable of the pearl of great price in Matthew, like a little micro parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. They could have seen it that way, that what they've got now is somebody who can heal somebody who's so destroyed and broken that they're not destroyed, actually, and that they're fully restorable. And what is available in Jesus is so much more than what they've previously had. They could have seen the gain in that, but they only see the loss. So what have we got here? Um, and how could it relate to our theme of, of where do we grow from here? Um, and what's the message and what's the, what's the challenge for us? Well, well, let's first of all deal with, if any of you have still got this lurking worry about the pigs, which I can understand totally. What, why would Jesus do that? What, what is really going on? It's a strange passage in that sense. Well, we're not told why Jesus allowed the demons to go into the, uh, the pigs, but let's, let's just say what we can say. What we can say from this passage is that the cure of one person is of more value than all of those pigs. One soul is more important than even a large herd of pigs. We should probably also say that the visual impact of that lesson is is so powerful for a multiply troubled person in that way. He would have seen that and it would have meant a whole amount to him. And we can also add that the freeing of the whole neighbourhood from that danger of this man who, with such terror, he could destroy chains and things, is of stronger value to the whole area. And that the value of one life restored is the thing that justifies it. If you push me, Jesus did it this way, I think, not because the demons asked, but because when they asked, he recognised that it would be strategic for his purposes. There's also something about God's timing in this. There's, there's a right time to say things and there's a right time to let other people do God's will. The man is told to go and tell about his experience with Jesus. But when you read through the Gospels, previously those who were healed are told to keep silent until this point. But because this man's going into a Gentile area, he's allowed to tell because Jesus doesn't want to say too much too soon or else he'll be destroyed. So what we've got here is this, and I think this is what we're all called to, a bigger mission than they're first expecting. The man's expecting to be healed, and, he, and then he wants this mission that Jesus has given him, and now he's called to a bigger and more exciting mission, maybe. 
is called back home, which isn't necessarily easy, but is the one he's called to. You've got bigger gains than losses for those people. They could see only their losses in the pigs, but they've got bigger gains than that if they really take it seriously. And then you've got, like I was trying to describe in the chess story right at the beginning, bigger plans than our own plans. Bigger plans than we could ever create for ourselves. One of the things we've been saying uh, over this weekend, if we're asking the question, where do we grow from here, is that we need to think creatively about how we do what we do, and we need to think creatively because there's more options and more creativity and more flexibility in God's word than there is in our traditional ways. And I was thinking about that in relation to Kodak film. When I left university the first time around, I went to work for a department store group that's now not doing quite so well, Debenhams, but was doing all right at the time. A friend of mine who also felt called to full-time Christian work at some point, um, although I think we all do full-time Christian work, really, he, he went to work for Kodak. Now, Kodak was like the premier job at the time of leaving university. It was like the blue chip company to ever think of working for. He got the kind of better job than I did. Kodak, now though, if you look at it, no longer exists at all. And if you trace that back as to why Kodak went out of business, it's not really hard to work it out. It's because they still carried on making film when we all moved to digital photography. And so now, if you've got a phone on you, you can take a digital picture and n nobody is taking a kind of middle grade film. You can still buy cameras that use 35mm film, but they're at like the top end. Kodak were always at the middle range of things, and that's been totally taken over by us all having the ability to take a picture on our phone. All well and good, except for this. What if Kodak had said to themselves, not we're in the film business, but we're in the image business? Where would they be now? I'm convinced that they would still be leading the world market for this. And I'm convinced of that because when you look at the history of it, Kodak had the first copyright for digital photography. They invented it and then they let it go because they looked at it and the pictures they were producing, they weren't terribly brilliant. And they just thought, well, nobody's going to get into that. And so they just let it go. And now they've been let go as a company. Part of the appeal I was making yesterday is that we have more flexibility in God's word than our ways, and we need to think creatively about, therefore, what God might be calling us to do in a whole variety of ways. We need to ask the question, what will it look like in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time? if we just keep doing what we're doing, and if there isn't revival and if the Lord doesn't return, both of which could happen. You asked the question, Alan, what were we thinking and praying in, in the worship beforehand? And I, I didn't really want to share what I was thinking and praying because it involved those who were, who were gonna, about to go out, the young people and the children, who some other people have already said in their sharing, you're very blessed with, and some great children here. What will it look like in 10 years' time? What will the church scene look like? What will this church look like? You know, we're, we're raging and declining as a group of churches. I'm not saying your church, but I am saying 2,000 churches overall. We can't be okay with that. 
It's getting harder and harder to do what we're doing, and particularly getting harder and harder to do it when we're not together. So how, how do you feel a confidence in your faith when you're alone, or at least in a minority, at school, college, and then at work? What would it look like when they're 20, those ones there, and 30? We need to think creatively about how we do things for their sake. And, and we're bringing two messages in effect. One is to think creatively, because God's creative, and the other is to think about our whole lives. The interesting thing about this guy, you see, is he wants to go on some bold mission. Let me go with you, Jesus. In fact, the word says he begs Jesus. And the challenge for us, if we think Jesus always said yes to people's prayers, is Jesus says no. No, I've got something else for you. That's not what you're going to do. Go back home and tell of all that God has done for you. And where he's called to is where Jesus isn't welcome anymore. Jesus has been told to go, and he does go, but he sends his ambassador. What if some of us are called to go, not where we particularly feel called to go, but back to our workplaces, to our social spaces, to our families, to our neighbours, and tell of all that God, Jesus, has done for you, both in word and deed. The answer to where we grow from here for another generation and for ourselves and for those who are our generation is not probably the next brilliant idea your church have, though I'm sure it will be brilliant and support Alan when he comes up with a brilliant idea. It's, it's, not, it's not that. It's, it's all of us collectively owning the decisions. We will never get anywhere until we equip each other for our everywhere This man isn't sent on some bold, exciting mission. He's sent back home. That's harder, actually. But it's what he's called to. We were looking at that yesterday with the resources of LICC, the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, an organisation that I'm going to work for. I'm just going to show you a brief clip if the media works for us, and if there's no power cut, we'll see how it goes. So what if that's all of us sent back to our various places? What if that becomes the key? Then when we gather here, it's about restoring ourselves, equipping ourselves, encouraging, giving some tactics, sharing some stories, as you do each week here, to get back out there in the game. We share some stories along those lines and some resources uh, from our website, if ever you want to use that, wheredowegrowfromhere.org or on the social media that's there. But those of us, I said yesterday, those of us who stand here and give a half-time team talk, which is really what a sermon is, we ought to have our own stories then of our own frontline situations, a a word you use uh, here sometimes to describe where people are in their whole week, where they spend time with people who who aren't yet believers. And and I try to make that true for me too. As a as a church minister and the president of the denomination, I spend a lot of time with Christians, which is lovely, but I also need to spend some time with people who don't yet share my faith. And so one of the places I do that is golf. It's a tough calling, but if that's what you have to do, it's what I have to do. And I have often found that I'm halfway round a round of golf when somebody asks me what I do for a living. So it's like two hours in, or an hour and a half in, we've done nine or ten holes, and they say, so, so what, do you, what do you do then, Ken? And I say, oh, I'm a church minister. 
And at that point, their reaction is pretty much like yours. Silence. And I've learned, I think, over the years, that what they're doing at that moment is they're replaying the last two hours in their heads. And they're trying to work out like what they've just said. I've known them apologise for their language at that point. I'm not particularly worried about that and how they were and everything. But more importantly, they're trying to work out how I was in the light of this new knowledge. How was I when things went really well for me and really badly for them? And the reverse, how was I when things went really badly for me and really well for them? How did I treat the people in the shop before we got out? How was I when we were made to wait and we shouldn't have been and the other group uh, played us through? And the thing is this, they are not expecting perfect. They're just expecting a difference because of this reality that they now know that Jesus is is in me. And if that's true for two hours, for me, it's true for us for our whole lives. Your friends, your family, they're not expecting different. They're not expecting perfect. They are expecting different. A difference because Jesus is in you. I met a professional golfer. Uh, you'd have to be really into golf to know his name. Uh, called Anders Forsbrand. Now, Anders Forsbrand was on the European Tour. He won some tournaments on the European Tour. And uh, he was vice-captain of the Ryder Cup if you've heard of the Ryder Cup, and he became a Christian through somebody else who you probably have heard of, also a golfer, also a Christian, called Bernard Langer. Now, Bernard Langer's a pretty famous golfer. He's won the Masters twice, uh, which is one of the four big tournaments. Really, really well-known golfer, really precise golfer. And he was a Christian. He took Anders Forsband on tour. So we said, um, or travelled with him, I guess he has a private jet and all that sort of thing, Anders Forsbrand, we, we were sitting in front of him and he said, so tell us how you became a Christian. He said, oh, I became a Christian because of Bernard Langer. So, so we said, tell us more. He said, Bernard Langer was a better person than he was a golfer. And I had to find out why. So he would have seen Bernard Langer when done terribly in a tournament. He would have seen how Bernard Langer treated people at airports and at hotels. He would have seen how he treated his caddy and his opponents. He would have seen him when he won and when he lost. He saw something that he wanted to pursue. And, And from that, he wanted to find out more. A key ingredient for where do we grow from here is all of us trying to be good ambassadors and represent Jesus wherever we find ourselves. I'll I'll end with this, um, because it could help you in how we dialogue with each other after services. My son um, played table tennis reasonably competitively, um, and it meant that we would uh, take him to various tournaments. Um, Normally I'd go, but the coach would go as well, and and table tennis is the game that has changed the most, by the way, in my lifetime. I don't know if anybody plays table tennis competitively, but in my day, table tennis used to be up to 21, and now it's up to 11, and the ball has changed size, I don't know if you've noticed that, so it's bigger than it used to be, and the bats are more kind of, they've got more spin in them than they used to have, which means that now it's a rule that the bats have to have different colour rubber on each side, because you can get so much spin on it that the opponent needs to see which side of the bat that you're using. I think the table stayed the same, but I can't think of any other sport where they've changed the scoring and the bats and 
and the ball and everything, everything else has changed. We, so now you've got these short games up to 11. What you do at the end of those games up to 11 is you can put, you have to leave your bat on the table and you have to leave the ball there so you don't tamper with it. And then you can go to the end of your area where you've been playing and you can spend just a minute or two with your coach and just get a bit of advice from your coach before you get back out there which makes good sense. On one occasion, the coach couldn't go to the, a particular tournament with my son's team. <coughs> I think four in the team, maybe six. Um, must have been four, because he said, could I take them? I said, fine. So the first tournament takes place, a big sports hall, loads of table tennis tables. I'm watching not my son, but another kid play table tennis. He loses the game. He puts um, the first game out of five. He puts the ball down like he's supposed to. He puts the bat down like he's supposed to. He walks to the end of his area... And he stands in front of me. And I realised that I'm the coach. Nobody told me I was the coach. I thought I was the driver. And I hadn't really been watching. <laughs> so what would you do if you were me? Well, I used to be a teacher, so I asked lots of open questions. <laughs> Why do you think you lost that game? What do you think that was good and bad about them? And... Uh, and he, and he went back and he had another go. And I realised then I'd be the coach for the rest of the day. So I watched really hard. <laughs> and I used to play a bit of table tennis. And so I could point out one or two weaknesses in the opponent. And, and, and we did okay that day, actually. My point is that most of you, you don't get to see the game for each other. Because we're here on a Sunday and then you're out on your different front lines. But with a bit of thought and creativity... You can ask the right sort of questions such that you can then encourage, equip, resource to get back out there in the game. If the man previously known as Legion is sent back home, then so are most of us. But we're not sent alone, he promises to go with us, and we're sent resourced and equipped from one another. So when you have coffee before or after service, doesn't matter, when you meet for life groups, as I know you do, it doesn't have to be an extremely good week or extremely bad week. We just have to ask the right questions so we know how we can pray, support, encourage one another for what we're facing. Let's pray. So Lord, help us to accept that the key answer for the next generation and for our generation and for genuine kingdom growth is not us manufacturing growth and it's not some brilliant new program that we need to be innovative and creative. It's for each of us to represent you well. And so, Lord, we picture our front lines. We picture workplaces and family. We picture children and grandchildren who we see occasionally who don't yet share our faith. We picture neighbours, we picture social spaces like our place we have coffee or our sporting activity. And we pray that we would represent you well there. We claim a new start if we've not represented you as a person of peace there. Thank you that our contacts are not expecting perfect, they're just expecting a difference. Lord, could we represent you well there, please, as your ambassadors? Could we describe in word and deed what Jesus has done for us? Uh, 
by the way that we act and when we're appropriate to do so by what we say. Could we give a good invitation to something like the baptism next week? Could we not, Lord, say somebody's no for them, but at least give the invitation and let them work it out for themselves? Lord, we pray blessing on Renew Church. We pray that, pray that they would grow from here, um, not because of anything that we've said, but because you have a heart for this place and you want to see people turn to you. So we believe this is a prayed one to answer. Amen.